Thank you, Brother Rob. If your Bibles are open to Genesis 37, we are studying on Sunday night the life of a remarkable young man by the name of Joseph. We are looking into this subject, the heart of a champion, someone who overcomes, uh, someone who uh, goes through trials, deep waters, difficulties, and they emerge with their faith intact. Uh, they emerge with a spirit that honors Christ, and I don't know of anybody in the Bible that does that better than Joseph. In our first uh, study into Joseph's life, we noticed that at different times, there were three different Egyptian people that looked at him, Egyptians, not saved people, not Bible believers, pagan Egyptians who came into contact with Joseph, and they all made a similar observation. They saw that the Lord was with him. There was just something about Joseph. They saw that God was with him. We ask ourselves the question, so what was it that they saw? Beyond that, we also ask ourselves the question, the people that we come in contact with, do they see that the Lord is with us? We got some homework that after that message to walk through the life of Joseph individually, to study it out, and to make a list of the things that we think they might have seen in Joseph uh, that, that, that convinced them that, that God was with him. Uh, we looked in the next message at some of Joseph's background. We saw his heritage. His, his grandfather, I'm sorry, his great-grandfather was Abraham. His grandfather was Isaac. His father was Jacob, all men of faith. All men who are listed in Hebrews chapter number 11 as men of faith. Joseph was a fourth-generation believer. Now, that doesn't automatically mean that he would be a godly young man. He had older brothers. Uh, he had 10 of them, and they were anything but godly. So as a young man with that heritage, Joseph had to make a decision. I am going to follow in the footsteps of my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father as far as their faith goes. We looked at his home life and realized that even though Jacob was uh, part of Joseph's uh, heritage, uh, Jacob wasn't a real good dad, and he wasn't a real wise father or wise husband. Had four wives at the same time. Played favorites with his son Joseph. Uh, his brothers hated him. They had a terrible testimony. So Joseph's home life was dysfunctional. In today's world, he gets a pass for every kind of bad behavior that, the, that there is. Well, you don't understand. I didn't grow up in this easy life, so it's okay if I'm a serial killer. Uh, you know, that, that type of thing. Uh, Joseph didn't fall back on that. Uh, Joseph didn't use the dysfunction of his family, again, as an excuse to have a rotten attitude or as an excuse to be a backslidden believer. We saw Joseph's hurt. And over his lifetime, he was going to have decades of hurt inflicted on him but the hurt that seemed to enter into his soul the deepest was that inflicted by his family. Later on, Joseph would, would reminisce about some things and he would praise God for God helping him forget the pain that was caused him in his father's house. And yet with all of these things, a, a heritage and a, a, and a home life and all of that hurt, we saw Joseph's holiness. One of those reasons that the unsaved could look at him and see the hand of God on him was Joseph stayed right with God no matter what. 
He did not again use the, the mistreatment of his brothers, the misunderstanding of his father. He didn't let any of that become his excuse to do wrong. We need to get beyond this looking for an excuse to do wrong and find a reason to do right. Joseph was such a young man. Now, we know that Joseph's story, in, in some ways, the worst is yet to come for him. We want to move forward tonight, and we're going to entitle the message, Joseph's Loss. We're going to look at yet another aspect of his life that I think these, these Egyptians, Potiphar, the prison guard, and Pharaoh, were able to look at this young man and see that God was with him, and it all surrounds what we're going to call Joseph's loss. In our text tonight in verse number 12, the Bible said his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Jacob and his, his uh, father and grandfather had all made their living with, with massive flocks and herds. These animals had to graze, and so they had to move them periodically, especially the sheep. If you let sheep graze in the same pasture for too long, they will eat the grass all the way down to the roots, and there'll be nothing left except dirt. They will destroy the vegetation. So a wise shepherd lets them graze for a while, and then after uh, several days or weeks, they will move them to other pasture to allow the first pasture to recover and grow again. And they, they were in constant movement with their flocks. So uh, uh, Joseph's sons went out with the sheep, and the Bible says they were feeding their father's flock in Shechem. Now Shechem was about um, 40 miles from where Jacob and his family lived. They were living in Hebron, which is 20 miles south of, of the city of Jerusalem. Shechem is 20 miles north. So they had moved these flocks and herds some 40 miles. You didn't do that quickly. If you, if you drove them too fast, the animals could not keep up with that. So it was a process of several weeks moving from point A to point B. His father came to him and said, I want you to go see how your brethren are doing. They couldn't pick up a cell phone. Uh, it was 40 miles. They couldn't just, you know, uh, you know, get in the car and drive up and see how they were doing. It was, uh, it was a different time and age. Uh, some have speculated that Joseph was kept back from going with his brothers, not because he was lazy and not because he was, you know, a daddy's boy or pampered, but because Jacob had decided that Joseph was going to be his heir. That coat of many colors that, that Jacob had given to him, that wasn't just a, a sign of favoritism. It was, it was a sign of responsibility. Um, it was Jacob saying, out of all of my sons, Joseph is going to be the heir. Now, he, that was his youngest son. The heir was almost always the firstborn. Jacob's firstborn was a, was a boy named Reuben. Unfortunately, Reuben had messed things up when he was uh, a young man. He had an affair with one of his stepmothers, and, and we're just going to leave it at that. He had a moral failure, and that just completely took him out of the, the uh, status of, of being the heir. And so Jacob went from the firstborn to his youngest, and that's what that coat of many colors probably symbolized, uh, uh, among uh, other things. It wasn't just favoritism. His father saw in Joseph the leadership and the integrity and said, I think I'm going to trust the future of my family to my youngest son rather than my eldest. 
Joseph was probably kept back learning the family business, learning how to handle the finances and learning all the ins and outs of what it would be to take care of a, a, a large estate and all of those animals and all of the finances and so forth. But Joseph uh, was sent by his dad. He said, I want you to go to Shechem and I want you to see how your brethren are doing. Look at the end of verse 13. And he said to him, here am I. Here am I. It's not that Jacob didn't know where Joseph was. That response was Joseph saying, I'm at your bidding. Now remember his father threw him under the bus during the dream situation. When, when Joseph had the dream that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed to him, his brethren hated him for that second dream. But even Jacob said, shall I and thy mother bow down to thee? And, and uh, um, his, his dad didn't support him. His, his dad didn't encourage him. Um, do you understand that, that Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob had thrown his son under the bus, but Joseph didn't use that as an excuse to become disrespectful. We live in a day where disrespect is almost applauded. Uh, we, we live in a day where it's almost like a sign of manhood to be disrespectful, whether it's a child to their parents, an employee to their employer, and so forth. Joseph had something different in his character. When his father said, I want you to go and see how your brethren fare, Joseph didn't argue, he didn't debate, he didn't throw an attitude because of how poorly his dad had treated him just a few verses prior. He just said, here am I. I'm at your service. Whatever you need, whatever you want, that will I do. So Joseph undertook that journey. It was going to be 40 miles traveling all by himself, it appears. And he got to Shechem and um, his brethren and the flocks were nowhere to be found. Shechem was a small town in a huge valley. There is a mountain on each side, Mount Gerizim over here, Mount Ebal over here. Joseph could climb either one of those mountains and pretty much see the entire valley before him. And there was no sign of his brethren or their flocks. So he's trying to figure out where they went. And somebody stopped him and said, you look like you're lost. What's going on? He said, well, I'm looking for my brethren. Have you seen them? They said, I, I did. We heard that they were going to Dothan. Well, Dothan is another 12 miles north. So he was a long way from there. So he traveled to where his, his brethren were going to be. And this is, where, this is where the story took that very, very dark turn. We know that Joseph is hated by his brethren. But the Bible says in verse 18, when they, his brethren, saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to do what? To slay him. They've gone from not being able to speak peaceably to him. Now they see him coming and he would have stood out. He had a coat of many colors on. That color would have been stark against uh, the backdrop of, of that region. And they knew it was Joseph and their anger and their hatred boiled to the surface and now they're, they're conspiring. They're talking to each other. We need to kill him. Um, I've, I've been mad at some people over the course of life. There's been some people I don't like very well. But I can honestly say there's been nobody that I felt like I could kill them. 
There's, there's no way that I could even imagine myself doing that. But Joseph's brothers have this uh, within their heart. And uh, they, they said in verse 19, they said one to another, behold, this dreamer cometh. They're hanging on to those dreams. He thinks that we're going to bow down to him someday. It's eating at him. Verse 20, come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, his brothers didn't understand. Joseph wasn't daydreaming. Joseph wasn't coming up with stuff on his own. That was God revealing the future to Joseph. And these brothers are now saying, we're going to kill him, throw his body into a pit. We'll just tell dad some animal uh, got a hold of him, and that'll be the end of his dreams. Can I just kind of put this in there? You're not going to counteract God. You're, you're not going to do that. Uh, God's will is not going to be thwarted by any of the devices of man. And these guys are going to learn that in a very big way before all is said and done. Verse 21, and Reuben, that's the oldest, heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness and lay no hand upon him that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. I mentioned Reuben had some moral shortcomings, but here's one of the few times in Reuben's life that he actually rose to the occasion. He knew that his brothers were dead wrong in what they were doing. And he knew that, that, that murder was just, just that, that was going way too far. And uh, so he's, he's just saying, let's, let's not do that. Uh, let's just, there, evidently there was some kind of pit, maybe a dry well uh, that was there. He said, let's cast him into this pit. And in his mind, he's saying, my brothers will cool down. Uh, I'll get Joseph out of there. I'll send him home uh, to where he can be safe. And, you know, then we'll just deal with whatever happens when we get home and dad finds out what, what was going on. But he said, whatever it is, I can't let them kill my brother. And uh, so uh, look at verse 23, it came to pass. When Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. I want you to understand, when we talk about Joseph's loss, the very first thing that he loses is his favored status. Even with, with uh, throwing him into the pit, those boys have crossed the line. There's going to be no covering this one up. This is more than just they can't talk nice to him, that they make fun of him, they mock him for his dreams. They've, they've now gotten physical. Their, their attack on, on Joseph, it was sudden and it was a violent attack. The Bible says they stripped him of the coat of many colors. You, you got 10, 10 men uh, and they're all older than him. He is about 18 years of age. They're in their 20s and 30s. And he's being ganged up on by, by his older brothers. They rip his coat off of him. And then the Bible says they cast him into a pit. They didn't lower him down by a rope. They cast him. They threw him like a piece of garbage into this pit. Um, Joseph undoubtedly was battered and bruised. He was probably bleeding at some point. He's probably filthy now uh, and so forth. And, and his brothers, their rage is coming out. This was a vicious attack. And from this point on, he's no longer the favored son. Dad is not there to protect him anymore. 
He can't, he can't even get home. He has no idea what is about to happen. And all of that is gone. So he's lost his favored status. It is one thing in life when things are going well for us. It's one thing in life when people speak well of us. That is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But sometimes God allows us to lose all of those things that we consider a blessing. We talked a couple Sunday mornings ago about John the Baptist, Israel's number one preacher in his day. Multitudes followed him out of the cities from around the countryside and met him in the Judean wilderness to hear him preach. He had the respect and admiration of, of the common men. He had the respect of the Roman soldiers. The only people that didn't like him were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes. Uh, they didn't like his message. They were self-righteous individuals. But other than that, John was the preacher and everybody respected it. Even King Herod had a respect for John the Baptist. Um, and, and, and when John talked about the Lord Jesus, though, in John chapter 3 and verse 30, he made a simple statement. I, I mentioned it a couple Sunday mornings ago. He said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. We've all heard that statement. It's an easy statement to say, but it's a very hard statement when it becomes reality. John the Baptist would face that reality. The day would come and he has no crowds. He has some loyal disciples, but he's in prison and they can do nothing to really help him. The multitudes are now following Jesus. Jesus is the big name, though John's name is still remembered Nobody's clamoring to hear him preach and to get his opinion on anything. And he's languishing in the prison and he starts having some doubts. So he sends his disciples to Jesus. Art thou he that we should look for or do we look for another? Was I right about you or did I, did I miss the boat? And, and the greatest man born of women is doubting. He lost his status. It's one thing when we're riding high and everything's going well with us. But Joseph has found himself in a, in a situation and he's at the bottom, literally, not just at the bottom of a pit. He's at the bottom of his circumstances. And as his story unfolds, it will get much worse before it gets any better. We see the loss of his favored status. We see the loss of his family. Although his home life was about as dysfunctional as they come, he still had a home. His brothers didn't like him much, but up until now, they had not really done anything about it except not talk nice to him. He always had his dad. And yes, his dad threw him under the bus, but, but his dad didn't give up on him. Even when Jacob did that, the Bible says that, that he considered those things, monitored or, 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 or uh, meditated on them in his heart and so forth. Um, but before this night is over, before this night is over, even his dysfunctional family would be just a memory. And he would not be sure if he was going to see those boys again, if he was going to see his father or his mother again. And it would stay that way for the next 22 years. The loss of his family. We ask ourselves again the question, what did these Egyptians that Joseph was soon to meet see in him that led them to conclude the Lord was with him? I think it should be, we should be reminded, Joseph had no Bible. He had no church. He had no youth pastor, no Sunday school teacher. Um, he didn't have anything that we have today. He did have a dad. 
who loved him. Not a perfect dad, but his father loved him dearly. Um, and, and his dad, for all of his flaws, loved the Lord. And undoubtedly, it was his father's faith that was transferred into Joseph's heart. But you realize after this night, even that was ripped away from him. If he had a problem, if he, was, if he was discouraged about feeling like an outcast in his own home, he could always go and be with his dad and find some measure of encouragement and comfort and maybe hope from his dad. But after this night, that was gone. That was gone. So he has lost his favored status. He's lost his family because, you see, his brothers have taken a step that even with Reuben's intentions that I'll get him out of the pit when, when, when I get the chance, get him back safely to dad. The reality is his other brothers couldn't let that happen because they didn't want to face the wrath of their father. And so now he's going to lose his freedom. Verse 25, and they sat down to eat bread and they lifted up their eyes and looked and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother? Remember, they're still planning to kill him. Reuben's the only one that does not want that to happen. So Judah said, look, we kill him. There's no profit in that. Or we just, we just kind of get rid of our, our nemesis here. Uh, and so forth. He said in verse 27, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him. Like, wait, you're going to sell your brother and you think that your hand is not involved in all that? Uh, and so forth. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Isn't it amazing how we justify sin? Isn't it amazing? Well, I know I'm not supposed to gossip, but they sure, and we, we justify how they deserve it, and uh, we mistreat people, we do wrong, we sin, and, and, and it's clearly against the Bible, but no, you, you just don't understand. Judah is, is rationalizing the worst behavior you can imagine, uh, and he's, he's just trying to say, you know, uh, at least we're not killing him. I mean, all we're doing is selling him. He's still alive. You know, he's our brother. Let's be nice to him. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit. They waited till the next caravan that came by and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver and they brought Joseph into Egypt and they sold their little brother as a slave. I mean, just like that. His freedom is gone and again for 22 years, he will never have a free day in his life. And it was all done at the hand of his brother. As a slave, he has no rights. When Potiphar's wife in, in chapter 39 is going to accuse him of a horrible crime and a sin, he had no opportunity to defend himself because slaves were property. They weren't people. Slaves did not have rights. They didn't have the right to a, a, an attorney or anything like that that we think is part of, of, of just society. Um, he had no privileges whatsoever. He would have no say or control over any aspect of his life. Even in Potiphar's house, when he rose up through the ranks and Potiphar sees the Lord's with him, the bottom line is he's still a slave. He's not free to go back home and, and see his dad. 
He's not free to leave and go wherever he wants. He's still under the authority of Potiphar. He has to do exactly what Potiphar says and only what Potiphar allows. And that freedom is taken from him. All those choices are gone from him. So he's lost his favored status. He's lost his family as dysfunctional as they were. Now he has lost his freedom. There's only one thing that Joseph did not lose. He never lost his faith. He never lost his faith. Can I get you to turn with me to Psalm 105? Psalm 105. In this chapter, the psalmist is recounting portions of the history of the nation of Israel encouraging them to look back and see the goodness of God. It starts out, oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Of those events that the psalmist is going to pull out from their history, he's going to talk a little bit about Joseph. Verse 16, moreover, he called, talking about the Lord, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. God was going to send a famine into the land of Canaan. And that was, there, there would be no bread. And we know in, in Joseph's lifetime that that would not just be in Canaan. That would be a worldwide famine. But notice what it says in verse 17. He, that is God, sent a man before them. That's before the Israelites. Even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. And remember, his brothers sold him. They thought they were behind this. Now we find out from Psalm 105, it was actually God that was behind the whole thing. Do you know that nothing happens to us that God does not either cause or allow? God's in control, both good and both what we would call bad. God had a plan here and God knew this famine was coming and God had a purpose even for that famine. But God also had a plan to make sure that the Israelites did not starve to death because the Messiah had to come through that particular family. So God sent a man named Joseph down into Egypt, verse 18, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Joseph was dragged away in chains. In chains. Later on, his brothers, when they would stand before Joseph in Egypt, not knowing that the man in front of them was not an Egyptian, but was actually their little brother. Uh, he was now 39 years old, um, and they didn't recognize him. And they're talking back and forth one to another. They are reliving that awful night when they sold him, and they heard him screaming. They heard him crying, and they hardened their hearts against that 18-year-old boy that they were selling like an animal. The Bible says, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Now look at verse 19, an unusual verse. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Until the word of the, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. What does that mean? That's, that's an unusual type statement there. What it means is until God's word came to pass, those dreams were fulfilled. Um, Joseph didn't have a Bible, but God still spoke to people in those days. Hebrews 1 says, God, who at diverse times and in sundry manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets. 
So in the Old Testament, God spoke to people in different ways. He spoke to some with an angel. He spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. Um, he spoke to Joseph, to Daniel and others in visions and in dreams. Sometimes God would send a prophet and that prophet would deliver the word of God. In Moses' day, they began to get the written word of God. So uh, there were a lot of different ways that God communicated with his people. And for Joseph, God communicated him to him in those two dreams that he had as a 17-year-old kid. That one day his brothers would bow before him. And the second dream, that one day his brothers and his parents would bow before him. By the way, that happened on two separate events in exactly that order. It was first his brothers that bowed before him, and then it would be his brothers and his parents came down to Egypt and they would bow before him. But before that ever came to pass, the Bible says until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. That word tried can mean tested, it can mean proved. It can also mean sustained him. It can also carry the idea of it refined him. Um, Joseph didn't have a Romans 8.28 to grab a hold of. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are the called according to his purpose. He didn't have an Ephesians 3.19 uh, and, and, uh, that, that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He didn't have those, those incredible verses and passages that we know and we love and we grab a hold of. He didn't have the 23rd Psalm. Uh, that, ha that wouldn't be penned for centuries yet. All he had were two dreams that God gave to him when he was a teenager. And until they became fulfilled in his life, those dreams sustained him. He held on to those. In other words, even in the pit and, and on his way down to Egypt uh, being mistreated. And by the way, the Ishmaelites would have probably carefully beaten him, starved him, brought him into submission because they needed to sell him as a slave and slaves had to be submissive. So often the early days of slavery were a nightmare as they try to break the will of that person. Those days would have been horrible. All through that, Joseph is hanging on to, but God said, God showed me. At any point, Joseph could have just said, so much for God's word. So much for those dreams that supposedly God sent to me. So much for a God that would give me hope like that and then cause this to happen in my life. That never happened to, to Joseph. He never lost his faith. And the reason he never lost his faith is because he held on to it. Um, anybody here ever lost something? Anybody here ever lost your cell phone? Anybody? Isn't it amazing? We used to never have them. And now if you can't find your cell phone, it's like life just came to an end. The, the, uh, the earth is no longer rotating on its axis. The earth is now flat. We're all going to fall off the edge because you can't find your cell phone. I lost my wallet about a month ago. 
I had my wallet stolen four or five years ago, but this time I, I, I lost it and I thought, well, maybe I left it at the gym. So I called them and they looked around and said, no, nope, uh, nobody turned it in. I went to the gym anyhow and I checked once again. I went back to the locker room anywhere I was, couldn't find my wallet. I, I looked everywhere in my, my uh, uh, two bedrooms. I, I'm opening my dresser drawers thinking maybe it fell off the dresser into the drawers. I'm taking everything out. I did all of that twice and here what had happened, I had forgotten that I had uh, gone to a drive-thru and I paid for whatever it was. And instead of putting my wallet back in, in my pocket, I just set it on the passenger seat. And evidently, uh, while I was careening around a corner at 120 miles an hour, it slid off the seat on the far side down, down uh, on, on the floor by the seat. And it was, you, you know, it's always the last place you look. It's like, why didn't I look there first? Uh, after hours of frustration, I'm going to have to get a new driver's license. I'm going to have to cancel all my cards. Whoever, whoever got it, if they got my debit card, <laughs> they didn't gain anything by that. But uh, there's just something about losing it that, that uh, you know, uh, we, we just find that hard to accept. But most of the time when we lose something, it's because of carelessness. No one loses their faith on accident. You lose your faith because you willingly let go. You allow your circumstances to become more important than the truth of God's word and say, well, if God's going to let that happen, that doesn't seem fair, fair to me. That's all I'm, I'm going to give to God. You don't lose your faith. You leave it. Turn it with me to the book of Job. You're in Psalms. So just go a few pages before Psalms. Chapter number two. We know this story well. In chapter one, Job loses his wealth and the lives of all 10 of his children on one day. Job chapter 2, he loses his health. And he is, he is just uh, in, in a horrible, horrible shape. Look at verse 7, Job 2. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all a potsherd. That means a, a broken piece of pottery. He's using that to scrape the pus and the dirt out of these boils uh, to find some measure of comfort. He sat down among the ashes. It's the only way he could find any warmth was the ashes people threw out of their homes. Look at verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. His wife looked at him and said, with all of this going on, you are still, the word retain means you're still holding on to your integrity. Again, nobody loses their faith. We let it go. We make a conscious decision for this. Turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we read the story of another young person. He is called a child here, probably not even close to being a teenager. He has been kidnapped from his land by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, along with several hundred other children. The goal is to bring them to Nebuchadnezzar's palace. They're going to be brought up in the ways of the Chaldeans, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to use these children as they, they enter adulthood to help him run his vast world empire. 
Um, so these children are ripped away from home. And uh, notice what it says in verse number eight. But Daniel, one of these children, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The king set down this food and this booze in front of all these children. These are Jewish children. The Jews had strict dietary laws. Now they're, they're being offered all of this food. Actually, they're being commanded to eat all of this food that goes contrary to the teachings of the Jewish faith. Um, if you study the diets of ancient kingdoms like this, delicacies were things like rats and mice and, uh, you know, bird brains and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what, what they considered a delicacy, uh, there's, I, I'd rather just diet. There, there's just no way. But you understand mice and all those kind of things, those were unclean foods uh, and so forth. Um, we, we know there were hundreds of children there. We know out of those hundreds, there were four who said, no, we're not eating that. If we eat that, we're going to defile our body before our God, and we're not going to do that. They weren't disrespectful. They weren't mouthy. They weren't arrogant. They requested of the man who was placed over them that they should not have to eat that. And the man said, look, if I, if I don't make you eat this, uh, the king's expecting you to gain weight and, and, and to, to look healthy. And he comes along and sees you and, and, and you're looking uh, scrawny and pale. I, I, I'm going to not just lose my job. I'm probably going to lose my life because Daniel said, just give us vegetables. That's what Paul says. Just give us vegetables and water and, and, and we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Uh, I want you to notice uh, Daniel had no Bible now either. That was left behind in Israel. Daniel had no temple. It was still standing in Jerusalem, but it would soon be destroyed. Daniel had no mom and dad. He had no rabbi. He had no high priest. There was nobody standing over him as a child saying you have to do right. He'd been ripped from his home. Daniel would never go back to Israel, ever. Daniel would never see his mom and dad again probably never heard from them ever again. Daniel's been, been ripped away from all of that as a child. But Daniel did not use that as his opportunity to do wrong. Daniel purposed in his heart. That means he did it with reason, with, with resolve. I'm not defiling myself no matter what. We go back one last time to Genesis 37. And we consider this young man... Joseph, he's lost his favored status. He has lost his family. He has lost his freedom. By the end of the chapter, it says in verse 36, the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. If you flip over one chapter to chapter 39, Joseph was brought down to Egypt Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. We looked at those verses before. The point of the message tonight is, 
Joseph lost his favored status. He lost his family. He lost his freedom. He had no control over that. The only thing he had control over was his faith. And Joseph chose, I'm not losing that. I'm, I'm not giving up on God because I don't understand. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not walking away from God because it looks like God's allowed something terrible to happen to me until his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. He just hung on to those two dreams that God had given him. He just said, God has a plan. God showed me the plan. I don't even see remotely how this can be a part of it, but I'm going to trust what God showed me. In every one of our lives, whether you are a teenager, a child, an adult, doesn't matter how long you've been saved, Every one of us has to come to a place in our lives where we're going to decide, I'm not losing my faith. I'm not leaving my faith. Today, you may be experiencing the life of Job where everything's good, but you never know. Tomorrow, that could all be turned around. That could all be turned around. In, in many cases, people's lives have changed drastically. January 12th, January 12th, 2017, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning having no idea that by 11 o'clock that same day, our lives would be turned upside down and we'd have the diagnosis that Trina had glioblastoma, she had brain cancer. I had no idea. In seven hours, our world was turned upside down and inside out. She was the one that had the cancer. And I've shared her testimony before, and I'm happy to share it again. The day after surgery, as her mind cleared, and she was able to process everything that had befallen her, we had both done our research, we'd done our homework, we had an idea what the future might hold, there was absolutely no question in Trina's mind. She sat with me in the hospital room as I sat beside her bed and she said, honey, you and I have to be very careful right now because our children are watching us. And she said, I do not want my children to think that God is a bad God. Those were her words, exact quote. She said, because I believe that even in this, God has a plan. So you and I, have to decide right here and now that we're not giving up on God because we don't want our children to get the wrong message. You see, Trina lost her health, but she chose, I don't care if I lose my health, I am not losing my faith. And I don't care who you are, you have got to make that decision and nobody can make it for you. But you don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. Grow up. Nobody has treated you the way Joseph's family treated him. And yet he never lost his faith. And in so doing, he never lost his testimony.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable life.